This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're listening to Radio Therapy on 3RRR. I'm the uh, panel beater and joining me for the next hour, we have uh, SK, good morning. <laughs> Dr. Perry Pardum, good morning. Good morning. And Dr. Oh, I was, see, this is what happens when you read your notes. I was going to say Dr. Sharma, but Dr. Sharma can't be with us this morning. Um, not Dr. Sharma. No, you're not. <laughs> Good morning and welcome back after a short hiatus, Lady Gaga. Good morning. <laughs> SK, you've got something in store for us later on? I do. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about a film called Brain on Fire, and, I, and I'm not actually going to tell you which disease it deals with because I'm going to pose a bit of a diagnostic dilemma to the other psychiatrist on the panel. Though she's raising, she's doing the fist pump. It sounds like I've seen it. I'm so excited to talk about this. Oh, good. I, I won't pose the diagnostic dilemma to you then because you know the answer, but we'll talk about it anyway. Let's Brilliant. Um, and Perry Pardon, you've got a guest? Yes, I do. Jack Heath, who's the CEO of Sane Australia, is coming in to talk to us about their recent merger with the DAX Centre. Excellent. Some big news there, I think. And so we're also welcoming Dr Amanda Krauss, um, who's from the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, associated with the um, with the University of Melbourne, of course. And she'll be talking to us about some radio listening habits of older Australians and how that might relate to their sense of well-being and community. So another big show ahead, so whatever you're doing, wherever you are, and however we're getting in your ears, it's wonderful to have you with us. Back in a moment with some news. Lady Gaga, you've got something to kick us off with. I do, but compared to the content of the guests that we have today, I feel a little bit, you know, inconsequential, but hey-ho. Uh, not I'll, at all. I'll give you what I've read. So, um, out of my home state, UQ, um, has been some research this week looking at um, whiplash, uh, people who have experienced whiplash um, through car accidents um, throughout their lives. And there were two people um, specifically who um, were interviewed um, following their participation in this study. So um, the idea was that uh, people are typically following um, emergency incident like that are um, referred to physiotherapists for ongoing support, but no one really looks after these people mentally. Um, and uh, the idea was introducing 10 weeks of um, psychotherapy following an incident and seeing if there was any change um, in people's pain experience. And I found it really interesting, actually, because one of the participants reported um, a decrease from 50% movement of their neck up to 95% just following the introduction of therapy. And I was, yeah, I just thought that was really, really interesting. And the fact that when we're talking about um, more medical um, injuries, it's it's often you, you often don't think of how people are affected psychologically as is, a result. Is this without the physiotherapy continuing in parallel? With no, the no, this is in addition um, to the um, physiotherapy for six weeks. And did they have a control group who didn't get the psychotherapy? <laughs> <Or> so, <laughs> get... <laughs> well, the, so the person I was speaking about just then in that example had been in eleven uh, accidents and. And experience whiplash in each of those, and uh, yeah, you, you would think you would just get off the Stop road, driving. wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> of nine of those, they were a passenger, um, and so they had great anxiety about even getting in a car. And you know, it's all that's like a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. That poor person yeah. um, was just in so many um, pranks. But they, at, by that stage, across like a, I think it was a thirteen-year period, they'd experienced those um, those whiplash incidences, and. At the point prior to um, enrolling in this study, they had um, fi- about 50% of um, head-turning functionality. And following the introduction of um, therapy and talking about their experiences and some of the anxieties they may have can had... I, can I just get, get... Any of you give us a quick, succinct definition of whiplash? Well, I can talk about the mechanics of it. When you when you hit something in, in a car, your head continues moving forward for a while until you're restrained by the seatbelt, which then pulls you back yeah. into the uh, is it, is it muscular and skeletal and something else? And I think it's because um, there is fluid in the brain. Brain, yeah. Um, right. The 
the brain continues to move and will hit the front of the skull and then hit the back of the skull whilst the right. body is being held by the seatbelt. But that's concussion. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah Whiplash, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a muscular it's the thing neck, primarily. The neck, the, the, neck, the neck, that's right. Yeah. That's right, yeah. So. I can understand why the person you described would have benefited from psychotherapy. You know, after 11 <laughs> yeah. accidents and 11 whiplashes and a degree of anxiety that's clearly associated with that, sure. But I'm just wondering about the rest of the group who perhaps were in their first uh, car accident, who had a routine whiplash, who were getting physio, who if they didn't get physio with the passage of time would have got better anyway. Without a control group, it's very yeah. hard to see. And that's, yeah, that's a really great point. I guess um, the fact was they were looking more at the introduction of um, the 10 weeks of psychotherapy as, like, a pilot group. Like, would this do anything if at all? And I think there was one person also who was in the group who um, experienced their first um, whiplash injury and um, prior to... They, they, <laughs> they were almost the polar opposite of this other person I was explaining who kept getting in cars and kept getting in to... Um, unfortunately, kept um, suffering incidences. But they were at the point where they couldn't even get back in a car following... I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> following their accident. So, um, yeah, I think... Pa- Perhaps the addition of a um, control group could be something that they'd look at in in future and merits further investigation. That's right, but they are looking to expand um, the study following the introduction pilot study. But I thought it was interesting that, like, you know, we sometimes forget to on refer. Mm-hmm. Um, people to other services um, follow, you know, you look after their physical health, but not so much. I wonder why they made the distinction between whiplash and other injuries served, uh, suffered in car accidents mm. because you can imagine that you know, whiplash is fairly common, but people mm-hmm. have car accidents and break bones and mm-hmm. internal organs rupture. Uh, if we're making the argument that whiplash sufferers uh, would benefit from psychotherapy, I would have yeah. thought that argument would extend to, to all others. people who suffer injury in a car accident might do better if they got psychotherapy as part of the recovery Yeah, process. I think the, the main focus was um, the tension in the neck and um, the ability... Like, so when people are experiencing that anxiety that's um, clenching up their shoulders and, you know... Okay. Those, yeah. yeah, that so was the main focus. They're not implying that whiplash is a psychosomatic thing. No. no. Okay. No, no, no. Which yeah. is an amazingly apt segue from uh, the trauma that people suffer and the connection between the body and the mind to the thing that I want to talk about today very briefly and catch up, if that's okay. So um, <clears throat> my mind was drawn again and again to the horrific video and audio footage of children in detention uh, in the US, which was splashed across nearly mm. all of the media outlets over the last couple of weeks. And I suppose um, I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about what the head of the American Academy of Pediatrics said about separating children from their parents, which was the big novel thing which was done by the Trump administration. Um, She said that this practice is really nothing less than government-sanctioned child abuse, and she came under some criticism for being unnecessarily inflammatory, but I would probably go a bit further, in fact, than she went and say that we know that this kind of experience has a really profound and lasting damaging effect on children's psychological health. And um, and I suppose what seems to have emerged from quite a lot of long-term studies of attachment and, and the consequences of attachment failure over the years is that what children really need um, uh, as they're growing is uh, to feel safe and to feel loved. And those two principles should really guide all of um, all of the decision-making about children's care throughout, throughout their childhood. Um, and if those two things aren't present, we have really good evidence that kids can grow up having trouble coping with stress, um, coping in relationships and being much more vulnerable to all sorts of mental health problems, including depression and anxiety. So I just wanted to briefly talk about that and see what you had to say about it. Yeah, I had a horror reaction to it. It was to listen to that audio. Mm. Well, first of all, it's worth noting that at least (laughs) it's a long stretch of calling it an upside, but at least we're hearing stuff coming out of the US and the Australian detention centres, we've got no... um, uh, Nothing. That's right. Right, in comparison. Um, and regular listeners will be familiar with Dr. Malice's work who t- deals with childhood trauma. And he talks about trauma as intergenerational. So these sorts of traumas that are happening in these sorts of circumstances potentially aren't going to be resolved 
you know, any time soon, onwards and upwards. And, and in my own research with orphanage tourism and the attachment um, issues with the volunteers and the and the or- so-called orphans in the orphanages is a similar kind of attachment issue. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to, to bring it back to Australia, actually. So we know that only in 2013, just a five short years ago, Australia detained um, 1,992 children. Um, but as of the most recent statistics that we have, which is from April of this year, there are seven children in Australian detention centres, 22 in Nauru's regional processing centre, 180 in community detention and 3,038 in the community in, on a bridging visa. So it's not... It's, it's, I mean, we're all looking at America, but um, there mm. are things happening right here at home. And I would also say that all of the children, um, both those who are detained in the US and here in Australia are even more vulnerable to begin with because they've often been fleeing experiences of war or extreme poverty, which um, in themselves jeopardise those two principles that I was talking about before, about safety and about love. Um, uh, I also noticed that um, when the head of the American Academy of Paediatrics was actually touring some of those facilities in America, she said that the carers were instructed not to touch the children. And whilst that's clearly for the children's physical safety... Um, their psychological safety is also jeopardised in some ways by that as well. So it's such a, it's a really terrible situation all around. I was I was tempted to talk about the horrific video and audio footage from Thursday night when Reese Conker did his <laughs> ankle injury. <but> I'll, I'll, <laughs> Trauma. I'll, Thank you for bringing us back from the, the brink of despair, SK. <laughs> I would actually briefly like to mention a couple of developments in the voluntary assisted dying space uh, this week. Sure. Uh, I see the Australian Senate's brought in a draft piece of legislation for discussion to re-enable the territories to introduce their own uh, voluntary assisted dying bills. You might recall that in the mid-90s, the Northern Territory introduced a bill which was subsequently overturned by Canberra at the time. But there are moves afoot to enable both the ACT and the Northern Territory to introduce uh, similar legislation, should they wish, under this bill that's up for discussion. The other uh, uh, move locally, they, there was an announcement in the week about the establishment of the Voluntary Assisted Dying Review Board you know, much as uh, mental health services are subject to external review by the Mental Health Tribunal, uh, there's an external body that's been established to ensure that the uh, Victorian legislation which has been passed is not subject to abuse. So I think there's uh, a dozen or so specialists from various areas of the community and medical backgrounds to provide oversight to the, uh, to the legislation's workings in practice to make sure that it's not abused. The way it was reported, it was a bit scaremongery because it uh, implied that the board would review every case of voluntary assisted dying in Victoria and would have the power to, uh, you know, refer medical practitioners not only to APRA but for criminal uh, prosecution, uh, should they found to be falling short. And and the way it was reported, you know, to me, it's, it stands to put... <coughs> Uh, medical practitioners off participating in the exercise of this legislation if, if they choose to do so, and I realise it's a conscientious objector sort of thing. My understanding of what's actually intended, though, is that the function of the board, although they will review each case of voluntary assisted dying, they will do it from a, uh, a bureaucratic perspective. There are certain steps that must be followed in order for uh, a case to be followed through legally. You know, an opinion has to be provided by two medical practitioners, so they'd be checking that that was done, for example, but they wouldn't be delving into the uh, the clinical notes of the doctors or the medical practitioners who are involved in, in these decisions. So uh, a bit of misleading sensationalist reporting, which I hope is incorrect. <laughs> On an important piece of legislation. Sensationalist reporting. Who'd have thunk it? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, guys, I just want to bring some attention to the opening this week of the medically supervised um, injection room down in, in North Richmond. Uh, at the North Richmond Community Centre. I've just spent the last 12 weeks dealing with undergraduate uh, Bachelor of Psychology and Social Work students using as the, uh, the ICE uh, action plan as our, as our case study. So the uh, medical supervised injection room is, a, um, is an extension of the drug rehabilitation plan or the ICE Action Plan of 2015. And uh, students will be getting another dose of that next semester. (laughs) 
Um, so it's a it's a safety first. The 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 framing of the reasoning, the the, the representation of the issue is turning it to a health issue rather mm. than a crime um, issue. And of course, that's where the argy bargy in the debates occur. Um, there's issues around its location and and what have you. Um, so the they're staying at North Richmond in the space until mid. 2019 and then there'll be a, a purpose-built space for them to move into um, for the final year of the trial. Um, the um, the centre uh, apparently set up to have three main areas. So there's a, an assessment area, uh, an injecting space and a uh, treatment and recovery space. So um, we're about to hopefully see that the uh, the rationale that, that those who are you know who are promoting this is is some kind of solution to a very serious problem um see if that bears some fruit and i see the sun still came up this morning and the world hasn't ended as that's was right. widely predicted uh, following the inje- the injecting room opening that's right that's right you know um there's been you talk about uh, scaremongering or sensationalist reporting well this is a, another another time that we see that that's for sure well done, guys. Lots of news, um, radiotherapy-wise. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Radiotherapy. I'm here with um, my fellow panellists, SK, Lady Gaga, and Panel Beta, a leader of our show today. And we're welcoming Jack Heath, who is the CEO of SANE Australia. And I wanted to talk to Jack particularly at the moment because his organisation, which is already very well known around Australia, is merging with another famous Australian institution, the DAX Centre, which I've been a fan of for many years. Welcome, Jack, to Radiotherapy. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about um, who you are and and what SANE Australia is all about, and then I might ask you a little bit about the DAX Centre. For sure. So SANE's been operating for just over 32 years, uh, founded by Anne Deverson, and Marg Leggett down here in Melbourne. So initially the work was um, focused on schizophrenia and then about 20 years ago we changed the name and it became SANE Australia. So we were looking at mental illness across the board. Um, Our focus now is very much about dealing with those complex mental health conditions and we have work from a a helpline, we have online forums, uh, we've partnered with um, almost 60 mental health organisations around Australia to do that. Uh, we continue to do our work around reducing stigma and discrimination and our Stigma Watch program is one of the main features of that. And our final area of work is around um, how do we ensure that people living with complex mental health issues live longer lives because the suicide rates for people with the most complex mental illnesses is anywhere between 15 to 45 times the national average. And, of course, there's a whole lot of physical health issues there as well. So there are sort of four main areas of work and... At the moment, we're looking to um, expand our work around the research piece. So we're looking at doing a major piece of research uh, kicking off sometime early next year. In regard to suicide risk assessment? That one is going to be in relation to stigma. Uh So one of the things that we're looking to do there is to establish a national survey looking at the stigma around complex mental health conditions. And not so much part of it will be looking at, um, you know, what the views are of either professionals or others, but more understanding about what the person's experience of stigma is. And we just don't have any um, measures. We don't have any baselines. So the idea is that by the end of next year, we'll have a national baseline. So we'll be able to um, look and say, okay, this is what it's like nationally or in a state or hopefully even at a primary health network level. And then that we repeat that survey sort of two years down the track because it's part of the fifth mental health plan that we're going to reduce the stigma around these, um, as it says, poorly understood mental illnesses. Um, so anyway, that's a whole other big topic as well, but yeah, that's, that's a, huge, a big area of research for us coming up. Huge area of discussion. And I suppose in furthering our understanding of stigma and the reduction of stigma mm-hmm. in um, for people who experience mental health problems, art is one very direct avenue to um, communication and the sense of common humanity between one person and another often we we feel that there's um a real barrier between us and people who experience um serious mental Mm -hmm. illness and i think that all of those barriers crumble when you look at a powerful piece of art or or hear um amazing music expressed by someone who's felt that kind of despair the raw emotion associated with a lot of experience of mental illness well i mean i you're absolutely right and i think that was one of the things when the opportunity came us came up for um the DAC Centre to merge with SANE was that it very much sat 
fairly and squarely in terms of our work about reducing stigma and discrimination. And of course, as some of your listeners may know, the um, Cunningham DAX actually got together a whole lot of um, about 8,000 pieces of artwork by people who've been living in the old institutions. And then with, you know, that's been built on, I think there's about 15,000, 16,000 pieces now. But I was, I was just at, um, there's a new exhibition that was just launched um, yesterday. And just going back to your discussion around the, the refugee piece earlier, is that what tends to happen is that we lose sight of our common humanity. And, you know, with the refugees, we're not allowed to hear or know the stories of the individual people. And it's a similar around mental illness. And whether or not the first time you meet a refugee or, you know, people meet an Indigenous person, we have this sense of other. And whenever we have a sense of other, it like severs, it cuts what I would say is that golden thread of our common humanity. And so it's, you know, through artwork, you can see that people's aspirations are exactly the same. We all want to be loved, as you're saying. We want to feel safe. We want a place to call home. And, and what happens is that when, you know, whether it's mental illness or whatever the condition is, that when we sort of cut that, that is quite, I think, severe in terms of those individuals. So how do we try and bring these things together? And, you know, and I think that art is, is obviously one of the most powerful ways to do that and, and music's got a great role to play as well. Yeah, I think that's true. So I've always been a fan of the Cunningham Dax collection. At the moment it's housed at Melbourne University in the Kenneth Meyer building, which is just off Grattan Street and Royal Parade. And it houses a rotating... Um, number of the 15,000 artworks which have been produced by people who've experienced trauma or who have um, used art in their therapy experience Uh, and some of them have been involved in the Black Saturday bushfires, some of them have been uh, child refugees, some of them have been affected by the tsunamis in Mm -hmm. Southeast Asia a few years ago. Um, A lot of, all of them have really powerful expressions of emotion and whether it be through art that we would traditionally associate with, say, a painting on the wall or through sculpture or textile or more recently through spoken word and Mm -hmm. poetry. Um, The DAC Centre has always been just an amazing uh, display of human creativity in the face of distress. Uh, So I've always been a huge fan and I think it's a great opportunity um, for them to have a wider hearing and and viewing through partnering with SANE Australia. Yeah, I I think obviously, I mean, within Victoria and Melbourne, DAC is one of the iconic organisations in the not-for-profit sector. Um, I think one of the things that we bring with SANE is quite a good national reach, as I was mentioning. We've got partnerships with about 60 mental health organisations around Australia. And so we saw this as an opportunity to, if you like, to to take DAX to a much wider national audience. I mean, at the same time, I mean, there's only about three collections like DAX in the world. And we do have some um, connections there as well. And SANE's been involved for a number of years in the global alliance against stigma so to us this is why it made so much sense for the organizations to come together because we can take all the fantastic things that are there um, a beautiful gallery um, looking at a whole range of issues as well and for us to take that to a a national and potentially international audience is really exciting yeah can you talk very briefly about the most recent exhibition that's just opened because i think that will tell people a little bit more about you know how how each individual person might might experience um, the artwork that's on display. Yeah, for sure. So um, just yesterday um, we launched the exhibition, uh, which is called Putting the Pieces Back Together One Moment at a Time. And this is dealing with um, the issue of child sexual abuse. And it contains some absolutely stunning pictures by Peter Blenkiron. Um, the exhibition had been shown a couple of times, I think, in Ballarat already. But I think what's really important here is that when it comes to issues of child sexual abuse, um, unfortunately, in all the good things that's happened with the Royal Commission, the general public's understanding is if someone's endured child sexual abuse, that their lives are shattered and broken and it's terrible. And, and in a sense, that is the case for you know, far too many people. But what it means is that we've now almost got a stigma around having child sexual abuse and that's in an institutional context so that's before we even get to the familial issues which is a whole other piece but the thing that's beautiful about um, this exhibition is that Peter who's a you know incredible photographer you know in his own right has it starts off and has some of those more darker images but as you move through the exhibition you come to see this most beautiful expression of of, of colour and joy and hope and possibility 
And so getting more of those stories and that survivorship is absolutely critical because at the moment, I mean, if you're someone who was abused as a child, the dominant Im- images that have come through the media or the notion is, oh, your life's destroyed, it's wrecked, it's terrible, which then stops people from going actually having a conversation, which, you know, we know historically in terms of the Holocaust was that a lot of the people who were survivors there didn't actually go and engage with mental health services or that because they thought we're so alone, no-one knows what we've gone through. So breaking that stigma and sharing those stories of recovery and not being Pollyannaish about it, it's like it's freaking hard work, but sharing those stories, which again is connecting back to this sort of thing about the common humanity and, and when we connect and have that sense of common humanity, it gives us a sense of hope and, and possibility that's really critical. So for us, this exhibition, um, there's some stuff in there that's quite, you know, it's, it's quite hard. So it's not an exhibition for kids, um, but it's, it's quite wonderful in terms of what's been put together and a sense of journey and a sense of hope. Yeah, and, and um, I suppose a sense of regeneration and the possibilities that exist, even if you have had an experience that really profoundly changes the way you see yourself. Well, and, and you know, I, was, I had the, the good fortune on Thursday night to be at the um, launch of the um, book The Power of Hope by Con, who heads up the Asylum um, Seeking Resource Centre. And this notion of hope, or we were talking talking about it after the launch, and... I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's this notion in, in Japanese art called kintsugi. So I wasn't familiar with this, and I have spent the whole evening Googling this <laughs> phenomenon. But can you tell the listeners and me again what exactly it yeah, is? Yeah, so look, I, I stumbled across this about 12 months ago when I was speaking at a suicide prevention conference in um, down in Hobart. But what happens is that, you know, when you're sort of... I was, I was thinking, like, my grandmother left me when she died, this great big platter that was blue willow or something but had been broken and and when we see those old things and they're put back together it's got this dirty sort of mark where the crack was and you're trying to keep the pieces together so what they've done in japan with this kintsugi is that what they do is that they weave gold or mix in gold with the lacquer right and so what happens is that when you see the pieces put back together you see this gold thread where the crack was previously and so in so many of them it makes the piece more beautiful than it ever was before and um i was speaking to the curator of um this exhibition and um she'd stumbled across this just um, a few days ago as well so this sense that you can have beauty and something more spectacular than the original piece is just such a uplifting thing so um in many ways this is how do we not just put the pieces back together but how do we put the pieces back together so that what were the cracks or the dirt is actually gold and translucent? It's really special. I, I have nothing to say after that. That's quite amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that the use of gold to 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 heal um, uh, a shattered pot suggests actually that the pot is stronger afterwards than it was before, which is also an interesting yeah, extension yeah. of the metaphor. And, 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 and taking the metaphor just one for is this thing about this that golden thread of our common humanity that just sort of weaves through. And, and, and this is the thing that whether it's asylum seekers, whether it's people with mental illness, whether it's indigenous, whatever, is that, is that when we try and put those as others, we, when we try and deny that common humanity, we're like cutting that golden thread. And so part of it, how do we weave it back through all these you know, different areas of trauma is, is, is a really important thing because what it does is it not only it not only binds us together it also heals us as well jack thank you so much really nice to meet you today thank you very much for appearing here on radiotherapy great to be here thank you wonderful to have you you're on radiotherapy at three triple r with perry pardum lady gaga sk and panel beater we've just been speaking with jack heath of uh, sane australia talking about the merger with the dax center the DAC Centre again, Carolyn, found on the campus of University of Melbourne in the uh, Keith Kenneth Meyer building, which is the Royal Parade entrance. Yeah, right? yeah, yep. that's right. So just near the corner between Royal Parade and Grattan Street, you walk straight in and it's on the ground floor straight ahead of you um, and is always full of fascinating artworks uh, with a focus on mental health and, and recovery. Brilliant. We'll be back shortly to talk with um, Dr uh, Amanda Krauss about um, the listening habits of... A, older Australians and their well-being. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. 
welcome back to Radiotherapy on 3 R. Perry Partham, you just wanted to add a couple of details on the back of our last uh, segment with our guest. Yeah, I really did. So just so that everybody knows that they can go and see the Dax Centre collection, the most recent exhibition, which was putting the pieces back together from 12 till 4 every day until the 12th of July. I'm so sorry, the 21st of July. So I would really strongly encourage anyone who has an opportunity to go along there, corner of Grattan Street and Royal Parade in Parkville. I second that motion. It's a great, great centre, well worth popping in. Great lunch hour type destination as well and very convenient for me. Um, You're all listening to Triple R Radiotherapy. Our next guest uh, today is Dr Amanda Krauss, who's a research fellow um, uh, with an ARC, no less, uh, with the Centre for History of Emotions at the Melbourne Conservatory of Music. Conservatorium or conservatory? Conservatorium. Conservatorium of Music at the University of Melbourne. Dr Krauss is uh, interested in the social and applied psychology of music with a focus on everyday music interactions. More specifically, and the reason we have her with us today, her research interests concern music... um, concern music... I'll go again. (laughs) (laughs) Speech therapy, anyone? (laughs) Music behaviours with an emphasis on considering listening, digital music and emerging web technologies and the intersection of everyday arts and wellbeing. Today we're lucky enough to have Dr Krauss with us talking about her latest piece of research which explores older people's radio listening practices to see how that might relate to their sense of wellbeing, including depression, loneliness and feelings of isolation. Welcome, Dr Krauss. Thank you. It's great to be here. How about you kick us off by giving us a bit of context about yourself and your work? How did th- how'd you get this focus in your life? Sure. I guess growing up, I always was a really big listener of a lot of different types of music, and I used that in my own sense to affect my own well-being and sort of regulate my moods and deal with other people, and that's a very common thing. And so I was really excited when I figured out that I could actually do this as my job. (laughs) And so I am a researcher in the area of music psychology. So what that means is that I spend my time researching how and why we listen to music, and right now that's really focused on well-being. So that's where I started and where we're going right now, like you mentioned, is to think about how older listeners in particular, because Australia is having a big boom in our population, everybody is aging. So this is something that we can consider to maybe prevent additional issues down the road with other physical and mental health issues. Awesome. And, and so why, what's, what's particular about over 65? Why not 60 or why not 70? You know, I don't think there's any lower limit. This is across the age range, but we're sort of going with 65 because that's sort of the industry standard of when you become older, even though that's not really a set point. So what's the sort of thing you're asking these uh, subjects of your research? So right now we have a survey and what we're really interested in getting is sort of that lay overview of what do people like to listen to on the radio. I'm really interested in the music part, but the radio gives us so much more than Mm. that. There's talkback programs where you're listening to people communicate. There's the news, there's sports, there's all sorts of different things. So what we want to look at is what people are really gravitating towards, their habits during the day, if it shifts, and then how that links to their sense of well-being. Why did you have to do a survey to determine that? Couldn't you look at, say, the Nielsen ratings, which break down uh, listenership according to age group, gender, time of day, geography, and so forth? Yes, so that gives us some basic demographic information, but what we want to really then look beyond that to understand these links to well-being and links to... uh, maybe people's personality and other traits about them as individuals. It sounds like a like a an inquiry that is going to have a lot of um, I don't know cross sections in it. So are they listening alone or are they listening, you know, um, in a lounge room with others or are they listening while they're doing something else or are they listening in the car? How do you capture that or how do you find a focus there? Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's one of the reasons I'm really interested in listening. There's a lot of really great research being done on music uh, making with older people. And that's where we see a lot of benefits. In fact, my colleagues and I just did some research where we identified that there's more than 500 different 
benefits to your well-being for being involved in music, which I won't be able to spend the time listing out right now. But what I'm really interested in is with music participation, sometimes you need instruments or you need a choir leader or you need to be able to go and actually physically get to that activity. Whereas just like you said, listening can be by yourself, can be with other people at any time of day. And that is something that we're really going to try to break down and look at to see the differences, if there are any, in those types of listening situations. Do you ask them about um, other uh, sources of the same kind of thing, so digital music and, and things like this? Yes, so that's something I'm also really interested in is understanding the different technologies that we use, and we know that the radio is something that's been around forever, but even how you access the radio can happen on a boombox or a computer or a mobile device. When, when you started this research, I mean, most research projects begin with an hypothesis. What was the question or the idea that you had in mind when you began this research? What was your research hypothesis? What, what did you think it would show us? I think it's going to show us that there... Well, I can tell you preliminarily, after speaking to a bunch of people through doing interviews in order to get to the survey stage, what we're seeing is that people talk about their relationship with the radio in a few different ways. And sort of on a continuum where some people have it just out of habit on in the background and it just sort of is there and other people on a more different sort of spectrum there talk about it as a companion and so that's the idea that I'm really interested in is that even if you're alone or you're isolated unable to get out that through the radio this medium can give you companionship. One would imagine that those functions are served also for younger listeners as well. You know, we, we yes. have radio on in the background, we listen to the radio when there's nothing else on, we become part of a show that we listen to regularly, for example. Uh, any plans to expand it to, to younger groups? And, yes. and if so, do you, do you, do you, do you hypothesise that the answers would be any different across uh, ages? I would like to do this uh, across the age span, across the lifespan, and I think what I, my hypothesis, if you were to push me towards it, would be that it might be slightly different just simply in the way that now younger consumers are listening to music, where it's less of sort of, it's not an album structure, it's not a journey, and it's piecemeal, and there's playlists, and you're using technology where it's possible that there maybe is losing some of that companionship, whereas the people that I've been talking to through this uh, research have really focused on they listen to the same program repeatedly, they have favorite presenters, and they really develop relationships through the listening that they're doing on the radio. Can you talk a little bit, you know, we, on the show before we've talked about social media in people's lives and how that serves either a positive or negative benefit towards their connection with others. Um, when we're thinking of social media, people are commenting and, you know, they're liking or, you know, thumbs upping and all of those sorts of things. Um, and that is the metric for engagement with the digital community. What's, what's the metric for engagement other than just having the radio on listening to music? That's a really interesting question. I think part of it could be sort of that talk back call in radio station format that not all programs have, but that there is a sense of actually participating. Um, a lot of radio stations have the social media and take requests and things like that. And there's also been some really great research in the past that has shown for regional and remote communities that they actually can pass messages to family members in other locations or even to family members in prison by passing messages sort of saying happy birthday and saying hello through the radio programming right. yeah those sort of love letter yeah. love dedication shows yeah. yeah yeah um do you make distinctions around the type of music that people are listening to are, are people who are listening to one particular type of music more positively connected than people who are listening to Norwegian death metal, for example? <laughs> yes, uh, the type of music and genre and preference is definitely a part of it, but what I see is that people within their own personal preferences are able to regulate their moods, but what you actually choose may be different from somebody else's choices. But it's that sense of electing to listen to a favorite performer or a certain program on the radio that's going to allow you to put yourself possibly in a better mindset. 
Linda, I go into a lot of residential aged care facilities as part of my work and, you know, there's the inevitable soundtrack of either Frank Sinatra or Andre Rieu that the staff have put on for the residents because they assume that that's what the residents want to listen to and it might have a positive effect on them. Do you think that for background music played in residential aged care there is a particular type of music that should be played mm. to lift the mood of residents, given that the rates of depression, for example, in nursing homes approach 50%? So that is, uh, they're making a choice and it's something called a reminiscence bump. And so what we do is when we're uh, young adults, sort of in our teens to early 20s, that's the music that really sticks with us through the rest of our lives. So that's sort of where the Frank Sinatra area is coming in. As we all age, that's going to shift in what they'll put on in the background. But Nor- that Norwegian death metal. <laughs> potentially could be for some of us, but uh, what that ignores is the personal preferences. So there's also a lot of research and a lot of work in care homes and elsewhere being done into individualizing playlists. And what we need to do and has not yet been done is to compare uh, those different uses of those different technologies to see maybe what could be better. And, and, and specifically on the question of mood, mood music, you know, as a person with an interest in music and its effect on emotions, is there a sort of music that in general would be more expected to lift somebody's mood than to put them down? Is it that intuitive? It's a little bit more complex and deals with personal preferences. But uh, when you ask people to sort of choose music that they find uplifting, that will have the biggest positive effect. I was just going to jump in here. Um, my mother is um, in a home at Edith Bendel Lodge um, in Pascoe Vale, and she also has dementia. But music is just so absolutely critical to her. And one of the things that they've just been trialling um, probably in about the last four months or so is that people have their individualised playlists. So sometimes if I'm going in to see mum, she'll be sitting there with her headphones on, listening to all the songs that she's known from her whole history. And... and and I don't know if it's just the music, but since that's been happening, there's a, there's a level of um, just calmness mm-hmm. um, that's come because of that familiarity. And um, it just seems to me that it's just so powerful in terms of being able to capture those parts of history or whatever, but bring them together. So this individualised playlist actually becomes really powerful and hopefully you're getting away a little bit from those sort of assuming that everyone will want the same thing. Yes, so what's really great about music is that within it, its rhythm, its melodies is having an influence, but also the extra musical cues also have this influence where if it's music from your history you have connections to it and maybe is the first song you dance to at your wedding and all of these other memories and it can act as a trigger so not only will it calm some of those dementia side effects but it can also sort of bring you back into life and there's a great documentary called alive inside and a lot of other videos that really highlight some of those points we're coming to the very end of our time with you, um, Amanda, but it's been really tremendous uh, speaking with you. One final question, given that you're talking about community engagement and wellbeing and given that we're on a community radio station, are you asking participants whether or not they're listening to commercial radio, ABC, government radio or community radio? Yes, I'm asking sort of, sort of to state any particular stations or channels or programs and that will all sort of be in it as a part of it. There's a lot of details to look at. no doubt. And just finally, are you still looking for participants? Would you like to give some people some information if you are? Yes, we are looking for people to take part in the survey, which uh, you can find all the details on the website, which is cbf.com.au slash wellbeing. There's a link there to the website to do the survey, but I'm also able to post out paper copies as well. So there's links right there to my email and phone number. So please do get in touch if you can take part any adult is able to do it we are looking for people 65 and older but even younger people are able to take part in the survey brilliant thank you dr amanda cruz from the uh, melbourne conservatorium of music at the university of melbourne you're listening to radiotherapy on three triple r with perry pardum lady gaga sk and panel beater we'll be right back with some film you are listening to a podcast from community radio three triple r fm in melbourne australia Welcome back to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. SK, going to take us through some film. 
Yeah, a film called Brain on Fire, which got Perry Patton very excited when I announced it at the top of the hour. Oh, it's super interesting. I'm very excited. Tell me, tell me. You, you've done very well to see it because it was only actually released on Netflix on June 22nd, so not many people at this point have seen it or heard about it. So the reason I know about it is because the lady who wrote the book on which the film is based um, came and spoke at a conference that I was at um, a year or so ago, oh. and I just don't want to give anything away before you before you talk about this. Okay, so, so you gonna... have seen the film at this point? I have I have read the book. Read the book. Okay, that's just as good. Uh, <laughs> as you may have gathered, the film is based on a true story. Uh, and it, it's interesting, uh, we were talking earlier in the show about stigmatising mental illness because I actually thought this film uh, it's, itself was somewhat stigmatising of mental illness, not because it was a negative portrayal of somebody with a mental illness, but a large part of the narrative tension in the film was tied up between a battle between the family, the parents, and the doctors who were treating this uh, this young lady uh, for her symptoms, uh, and they were fighting what was depicted as a heroic battle to stop the, the patient being sent to a psychiatric hospital. And the message was, you know, uh, you're condemning our daughter to a psychiatric hospital, which sort of uh, raises spectres of enter, lose hope all you, you enter here, which I think is a very negative message and suggests that, uh, you know, psychiatric, uh, psychiatric interventions are unlikely to be helpful and are a last resort. This is a film based on a true story. Uh, in, in previous days, prior to the days of Netflix, uh, it would probably be categorised as a disease of the week film. You know, one of those films that crop up on daytime television about some rare disease uh, to show the story of a, of a person. It is indeed a disease of the week film. What sets it apart from the, the genre somewhat is the cast. Uh, the lead role has uh, Chloe Grace Moretz in it, who many of you will remember made her debut as the uh, foul-mouthed 12-year-old girl in the Kick-Ass movie. And it also has uh, Carrie-Anne Moss, who uh, made her uh, big-screen debut as the kick-ass female lead in the Matrix films. So quite a good cast there. The story, uh, 21-year-old uh, reporter for the New York Post starts developing uh, nebulous symptoms, initially fatigue, difficulty concentrating, perhaps blurred vision. She then goes on to uh, have a couple of seizures as part of the evolution of her illness. She starts hallucinating, uh, hearing and seeing things, seeing what she described as bed bug bites on her skin, uh, hearing and seeing a tap dripping that clearly wasn't dripping. She goes to a variety of doctors. Uh, first, first board of call, of course, was a general practitioner uh, who is portrayed as a bit of a buffoon. Uh, she's telling him about uh, her symptoms and his first question is a question that I've never asked anybody in 25 years of medical practice, which is, is there any history of Lyme disease? <laughs> she's presenting with fatigue and poor concentration. Oh, do, do is there any history of Lyme disease? And this gets back to, in some ways, uh, to the central premise of the story. There's an old saying in medicine that when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. Mm. Uh, it's paraphrased as being common things occur commonly. And uh, for all intents and purposes, the symptoms which this uh, young lady's illness evolved into were pretty classical for a couple of different uh, psychiatric illnesses. She had uh, significant mood swings at one point. Uh, which led her to do her own research on the internet and diagnose herself with bipolar disorder. And she went to a psychiatrist asking to be treated for bipolar. Uh, other of her symptoms were very classical for schizophrenia. Uh, hallucinations, del delusions, uh, disordered thinking and speech. She became catatonic at one point, you know, largely unresponsive and mute. Uh, with uh, motor neurological signs as well. So it's, it's not entirely uh, unreasonable at all that any of the specialist doctors who saw this lady as her illness was evolving uh, diagnosed mental illness because they were hearing hooves, uh, common symptoms of mental illness, and they were thinking horses, common things like schizophrenia, uh, substance abuse perhaps, and bipolar disorder as the likely diagnosis. And uh, off, much as you often do in a disease of the week story, there's, uh, there's one hero doctor who uh, refused to listen to all of the naysayers before him and was essentially called out of retirement to consult on this case. And, uh, you know, he promised her that he would get to the bottom of it, and uh, he, he did. Uh, 
ultimately diagnosing her with a very rare condition called anti-NMDA receptor antagonist encephalitis, receptor encephalitis. Which is not as rare as we thought it was, actually, because now it has been um, expanded, as you know, to cover many other different receptor sites. And, uh, and, and we think that it might be one key to unlocking the, the common thread... There's a lot of common threads we're talking about today between the mind and the body, that the brain itself as a biological organ uh, can respond in what appears to be a psychiatric manner to what is in fact an organic um, biologically based illness and that's what we think probably happened in this lady's case. So there's been several hundred cases of this particular encephalitis uh, described now. In fairness to the doctors who saw our protagonist at the time, uh, this this disorder was first recognised in 2007 and the, the lady who suffered it uh, had her problems in 2009. So it was uh, virtually unknown and understudied then, but as you say, has become uh, more widespread. It does raise the question of how many uh, cases of schizophrenia and bipolar and other disorders we might be misdiagnosing. Or, or in fact, whether or not the basis of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder is in fact a, a, a biological um, dysfunction which then expresses itself in psychiatric symptoms. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because the, the specific treatments for NMDA receptor encephalitis involve uh, physical treatments like plasmapheresis yes. and uh, infusions of gamma globulin and yep. perhaps high-dose steroids and things. Yes, immune suppression. Yeah, so um. maybe there's a role for these sort of treatments in, in broader psychiatric conditions. Oh, this is such an interesting conversation. I wish we had more time to talk about it. Uh, also, if you think about the inflammatory model in um, the generation of uh, depression or, in fact, for people with um, ongoing vascular disease in their brain, not only subject to problems like dementia, but also depression, which is very difficult to treat because we think actually there's a biological basis to it. Yep, absolutely. Uh, frontier psychiatry. Frontier psychiatry. One of the things which slightly irritated me about the film was uh, a voiceover in, in the voice of the, the protagonist towards the end of the film, uh, you know, making it clear that you know, this story was told so that awareness can be raised of the condition, which, which is so easily diagnosed, was uh, the final word of the voiceover. And, uh, again, reflecting back to the journey that this own lady's diagnosis took, they ultimately diagnosed her by doing a brain biopsy, which, you know, to me isn't an easy diagnosis to make and it's a, it's a fairly extreme investigation. Well, you and I think that, but actually neurologists and neurosurgeons seem to think it relatively... In fact, I had a lady um, who has this diagnosis as one of my patients and one of the neurologists came to me and said, well, what, what about this? This will be the definitive um, diagnostic procedure. And I was like, what? We don't do that in psychiatry. It's, it's, it's very rare if we asked for it, the neurosurgeon would say yes. Personally, I've seen two cases of this in my life. They were both in young women, which is not a group that I normally see, and I suspect we might be talking about at least the same person in your case. But an interesting film if you're interested in a disease of the week, Brain on Fire on Netflix. Just very quickly, we've got to hand over to Einstein a moment, but you last were speaking to us about um, representation of the medical profession uh, last month when you are on. Thumbs up or thumbs down as far as this film goes? Oh, Partly thumbs up, partly thumbs down. The general practitioner gets a big thumbs down. He's dismissive. He's not interested. I've seen it all in 20 years of medical practice. He's just tired <laughs> and needs to lay off the alcohol. Uh, some of the specialist doctors, well-intentioned but misguided, according to the film, and there's the hero doctor at the end, so it runs the gamut. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.